0: It's Friday, the 21st of April, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Hot Topics Podcast. From MB Medical, Neil Tucker here, as usual. And I always say this, but I'm going to try and be succinct today. I've got a bit of a cold. No one wants to hear me kind of slurping down a microphone. But medical news and research waits for no person. The show must go on. In new research today, we are going to be having a look at benpedoic acid, a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking to see whether it actually does help with cardiovascular disease. We're going to be having a look at another cardiovascular-orientated paper from The Lancet, on the relative importance of inflammation versus hyperlipidemia and a new paper in the BMJ looking into whether what you drink is important when you have type 2 diabetes. First, I almost forgot NB news. What's coming up in NB? So on Tuesday, that's the 27th of April if you're Depending on when you're listening to this, this may or may not have relevance. Uh, but though, So next Tuesday, we are doing another one of our free live evening webinars, one of our clinics. This one is on the cost of living crisis and how that can impact our patients and what we as medics can do to help with that. Then on Thursday, the 27th, we are doing a live webinar of our new up-to-date Hot Topics course. Please do join us for that. Don't forget, there's loads more going on. Check out the nbmedical.com website. And if you haven't signed up for NB Plus yet, our subscription service, do it. Just do it. In real news, things are still tough in general practice. In other news, GP Land is still the battleground for political parties. Labour has now got in on the act, promising thousands of extra GPs to help with the problem, Um, citing in the same sentence the Conservatives' failure to achieve exactly that. What's going to be different? They're going to double the number of medical student places. They haven't really realised that, although this is not a terrible idea, albeit the universities must be quaking in their boots right now how they're going to actually manage to do that in real life, but uh, they haven't really realised that this is going to take at least 10 years from medical student to general practice. They'll probably be out of power again by that point. The Liberal Democrats have gone one step further. 8,000 extra GPs, they say. Why not? I'm going to stand as an MP. I'm going to say 10,000 GPs. And I'm also going to add unicorns to the additional roles reimbursement scheme. Feeling a bit peaky? Don't worry, you can have some magic unicorn juice. They just wee it straight into a cup and you choke it down whilst it's still warm. That is how medicines are made. Tired of your current job? Looking for a change? Well, come and apply for a job at my practice. Send your applications to my practice manager Moonface at the fantastical general practice land, top of the magic faraway tree. I think we're going to move on from the news because none of us need to be that depressed. We don't need a reminder about what's going on. What we really need is a dog on a skateboard delivering medicines to elderly people. If you've got one of those, please send me a picture. Let's get on to the research, shall we? So, paper number one in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is Bempadoic Acid and Cardiovascular Outcomes in Statin-Intolerant Patients. Have you been prescribing much Bempadoic Acid? It was recommended in combination with ezetimibe by NICE two years ago. So you might have a few patients that are having a smidge of benpedoic acid. It's not for everyone. It's for when statins can't be taken or are contraindicated and when ezetimibe alone is insufficient to control people's cholesterol levels satisfactorily. And it is also not recommended as monotherapy. A paper in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago, 2019 it was, showed that benpedoic acid did reduce LDL cholesterol compared with placebo, but not by a huge amount, 16.5% from baseline. That's much less than we would expect to get with a modern statin. Couple that with the relatively high cost compared with most statins, it's no surprise NICE has come to that conclusion on benpedoic acid as monotherapy and why it's probably not on your formulary either. Why even be interested in it at all then? It's possibly because the mechanism that benpedoic acid reduces LDL by is different from statins and therefore it's meant to have a lower incidence of muscle-related adverse events, potentially making it a more attractive option for many of our patients that are struggling with those side effects. The biggest sticking point to this point, though, is a lack of data on hard endpoints, so cardiovascular outcomes. And what benpedoic acid does to those has been unclear. That's what this trial was aimed to clarify. So this was a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled trial of patients who couldn't or were unwilling to take statins um, for whatever reason, usually statin-intolerant patients, and they had a high risk for cardiovascular disease. They were then assigned to either have 180 milligrams, a standard dose of benpedoic acid orally, or placebo. 14,000 patients were included, randomized one-to-one, followed up for on an average of 40 months. In these studies, it's always worth understanding just the population that they were actually examining. So the average age was 65 Around half of the participants were 65 plus and around half were under 65. Uh, Just under half were female. 90% were white. The average body mass index was 30. The average cholesterol or total cholesterol, I should say, was 5.7. And the average LDL was 3.6. The good news for benpedoic acid is it did reduce LDL by 21% on average, compared with placebo, and the incidence of the primary endpoint, which was a composite of cardiovascular events, including death from cardiovascular events, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or coronary, coronary revascularization. That composite endpoint was statistically significantly lower in the treatment group, the absolute risk reduction was about one5 It went from 13.3% down to 11.7%. Perhaps we could say this is a reasonable but not a stellar result... A 1% reduction in cardiovascular events is often considered quite reasonable for cardiovascular treatment. But the problem with these composite endpoints is they do hide some of the important information. And benpedoic acid had no significant effects on fatal or non-fatal stroke and no significant changes to the levels of death from either cardiovascular events or from any cause. The authors conclude that among statin-intolerant patients, treatment with benpedoic acid was associated with a lower risk of major adverse cardiovascular events. In a real-world conclusion, we could maybe say benpedoic acid sort of shows some effect, sort of the time in some people, not quite the most major ones that we're looking for. And as monotherapy, don't expect it to turn up on your formulary anytime soon. The linked editorial, which they're normally pretty positive in the New England Journal of Medicine, concludes that, yes, this data shows that it does have some benefits, but uh, it also hi- highlights some of the side effects of benpedoic acid. Sure, it doesn't necessarily have the associated muscle, um, possibly diabetes or hyperglycemia effects that we've seen with statins, but it has its own side effects. So it, it lists tendon rupture, gout, reduced GFR those aren't seen with statins it doesn't sound like the miracle alternative moreover when you combine it with a statin which marginally boosts the potential for lowering LDL some data suggests it can actually exacerbate muscle symptoms where does this leave us in practice well I think it basically just means nothing's changed statins are top of the pile when you compare cost ease of use Level of benefit and probable side effects, they are our go-to cholesterol-lowering medication. And they are pretty good at lowering cholesterol. So compare to the sort of 16 to 20 or so percent that we've seen with benpedoic acid a decent dose of atolvastatin 40 to 80 milligrams is expected to reduce your cholesterol level by around half we know there's a virtually linear relationship between reduction in ldl and reduction in cardiovascular events So all of that sounds quite positive, which is where our second paper comes in. This is The Lancet, and the title of this paper is Inflammation and Cholesterol as Predictors of Cardiovascular Events Among Patients Receiving Statin Therapy. And what drives this paper is the idea that that 50% reduction that you might expect to see on a statin reduces someone's cardiovascular risk, but clearly isn't eliminating it. So what could you do to reduce it further? Well, you could, of course, add in more agents that further lower your cholesterol. I suppose benpedoic acid would do that a bit. Azetamide would do that. You've got the PCSK9 inhibitors. We've got inclisiran. There's multiple different ways, multiple different classes of medications that could further reduce your cholesterol levels. What this concept fails to acknowledge, as the authors of this paper point out, is that it's not just about cholesterol. Inflammation also plays a significant role in the development of cardiovascular disease and these anti-cholesterol agents don't necessarily deal with inflammation very successfully. The question then is what would be better as a second agent after statins, another cholesterol-lowering agent or an anti-inflammatory agent? There's been lots of interest in cardiology circles about the role of colchizine in modifying cardiovascular risk through its anti-inflammatory properties. But what is the relative importance of inflammation or continuing high lipids in patients who are already taking a statin? Well, that's the question that this Lancet paper was looking to answer. So they had data from 31,000 patients who were participants in three other large lipid-lowering therapy trials... In these trials they were on average 64 years old, around 70% of them were men, around 85% of them were women, around 70% of them had type 2 diabetes, they had a BMI of around 31 or so. All of them were receiving statins, most of them are high intensity statin and around a third of them that statin was for primary prevention. They then looked at individual patients' high-sensitivity CRP levels, their LDL levels, and then compared them against subsequent cardiovascular events, looking for any association between those two biomarkers. The results showed that inflammation assessed by that high-sensitivity CRP was a stronger predictor for risk of future cardiovascular events and death than cholesterol assessed by LDL. In fact, when they looked at patients who were in the highest quartile of LDL results versus the lowest quartile of LDL results... There was no difference in the rate of major cardiovascular events and only a 16% increase in all-cause mortality. Compare that to the highest quartile of uh, high-sensitivity CRP readings versus those with the lowest quartile results. The risk of major adverse events went up by 31% and the risk of all-cause mortality went up by 240%. The authors conclude that these data have implications for the selection of adjunctive treatments beyond statin therapy and suggest that combined use of aggressive lipid lowering and inflammation inhibiting therapies might be needed to further reduce atherosclerotic risk. There are two big caveats here. The first is that in the study, the participants' LDLs on average were really low. They were 2.0. I think that all of us would consider that a really good LDL. And so perhaps it's no surprise that trying to lower that even further results in really very limited benefit. The second caveat is if you do have high levels of inflammation and therefore your cardiovascular risk is high, what can we actually do about it? Yes, we've got some data that shows that colchicine can reduce the chance of mi and non-fatal stroke and maybe cardiovascular mortality a little bit but it doesn't improve all-cause mortality it certainly doesn't look like a magic option like unicorn urine although perhaps if colchicine was studied in that group which specifically had raised inflammatory markers perhaps it would demonstrate better outcomes no doubt future research will focus on that I think the main learning point from this is that we shouldn't underestimate the importance of inflammation in driving cardiovascular events. And maybe we just need to be a bit more mindful about our patients who do have inflammatory conditions. Cardiovascular risk calculators will underestimate their risk. Optimising disease control may reduce their risk and even if we don't have any specific medications to recommend like colchazine there still would be a role for statins in terms of reducing their risk in every other way possible just like we do with lifestyle modification. Finally, we will round up our what feels like a cardiovascular themed podcast with this BMJ paper published this week on beverage consumption and mortality among adults with type 2 diabetes, a prospective cohort study. Anyone with a new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes is going to get a bit of a chat about diet, but we shouldn't forget to talk about drinks as well now it seems a no-brainer that drinking sugary drinks if you have diabetes is a pretty bad idea unless you're actively hypoing but are there health implications for other types of drink what's the benefit or otherwise of drinking water milk coffee tea and what about drinks with artificial sweeteners in are they a good option or could they cause problems too This cohort study then followed over 15,000 people with a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or healthcare professionals in the US over the course of 30 or 40 years with an average follow-up of 18 and a half years. They looked at the consumption of different beverages by doing a questionnaire every two to four years And then, after some clever stuff with addressing confounding factors, worked out what the hazard ratios were for those different beverages. No surprise that sugar-sweetened beverages increased your chance of death or cardiovascular disease. In fact, your all-cause mortality goes up by around 20%. In contrast, water, but also coffee and tea, reduce your all-cause mortality I was surprised by the latter two. I would have thought coffee in particular, but also maybe tea, could have some detrimental effect, even if it wasn't actually on your blood sugar levels. But it turns out that people who drink four cups of coffee a day versus controls drinking less than one cup of coffee a day, have a 25% reduction in their all-cause mortality. So if you're sitting there in your practice thinking I'm drinking way too much coffee and I'm leading a very sedentary lifestyle, I'm absolutely knackered, but maybe I shouldn't have that third cup of coffee. No, you should. You should go for it. Press the button on the Nespresso machine and treat yourself just don't put a couple of teaspoons of sugar in it. And what about drinks with artificial sweeteners? Well, if you swap out sugary drinks for those with sweeteners in instead, then that does reduce your all-cause mortality and your cardiovascular mortality. However, if you're someone who's drinking artificially sweetened drinks then you can still see a further lowering in your all-cause mortality by swapping it out with coffee and tea or water i'm not suggesting that artificial sweeteners are the root of all evil but i do think they're gross remember of course that this is a an observational study so it cannot prove causality and b It is in people with a history of type 2 diabetes. It may not apply to you. But regardless, I am going to get myself a cup of tea now. So that's it from the podcast. Thanks for joining us once again. We'll be back in three weeks' time. Don't forget to check out the mbmedical.com website and all the courses we've got coming up. As ever, you can get in touch. You can email hottopics at mbmedical.com or find us on Twitter at gphottopics. I wish you many happy bank holidays and we will see you sometime afterwards. Bye bye.